Welcome everyone to the Live Your Career Show. My name is Roisin Duffy, Director of Blue Sky Careers. Our special guest today is Kevin Ryan. Kevin is the Australian Speakers Hall of Fame inductee. He's a member of a select global group called Certified Speaking Professionals, and he's distinguished for his conference speaking, coaching, training, and all of these services in Australia, Asia, and New Zealand. Kevin is the author of 11 books, and he's a recognized authority on, I guess, Kevin, we would say negotiation and communication, but also with a very strong humorous bent. Um, he's a regular feature writer for mainstream newspapers and industry magazines. Now, Kevin is an interesting one because for the last 20 years, he sat on numerous panels uh, for C-suite or executive appointments. And as he says, he has witnessed in many cases what he believes are situations where candidates have sold themselves short. And today on our show, Kevin dispels the myth, once I get the interview, I will be fine. Famous last words, eh? <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a delight to be here, Rajin. And we have discovered our Irish connection with a name like Ryan. That's hardly surprising. Even better from the same part of Ireland. So the connection is even stronger. Exactly true. So for the, anybody in the Irish community, and I know some of you are, are tuning in, Kevin actually hails from Cork. And, uh, and by the way, we do have um, Irish listeners, Kevin. So there's one for you. And they'll all be uh, trying to figure out what your background is now by the time this podcast is finished. Yes, and um, to be specific, a, a part of Cork known as Charleville or in Gaelic, a Rathlerk which yeah, stands for City of the Rats. So um, we have a very strong sense of self-confidence, those of us who come from the City of the Rats. We do indeed. And Charleville is North Cork, as people will know. I come from way down the southwest. Let's kick on. One of the things that I guess a lot of people talk to me about, Kevin, is, um, you know, we all have mental models. We have assumptions when we interview people. We have preferences. And we talk about confirmation bias, looking for things that light the fire or looking for that unconscious bias, people we automatically identify with. You've sat on panels for um, 20 years. How do you guard yourself against those kind of biases? It's an interesting area, Rajin, and um, only about, about a little over 12 months ago, I was doing a program for the National Trade Union Council or Congress, sorry, of, of Singapore, where they asked me to talk about the area of, of biases and cognitive biases, and particularly looking at unconscious bias. And I suppose that the trouble is by its nature and by its definition, unconscious bias is that which I am not aware of. And so... I can't really do anything about my unconscious bias. I try to do as much as I can about my conscious biases. And if you wanted me to be brutally honest, I'd have to admit that um, when I'm sitting on the panel, my biases come much more from a generational background or from a professional background than a gendered background. In other words, I have stereotypes in my mind about people from different generations, maybe stereotypes in my mind about how people from different profession and different professional backgrounds act. And I, I am uh, much more aware of that than maybe uh, somebody's gender. So I can, I can compensate for those. I can't compensate for the unconscious biases because I'm not aware of them. And I believe that's why most of the time nowadays we have selection panels because hopefully in a panel with having uh, uh, different types of people on the panel, 
we will be able to at least um, balance out that. Cognitive bias, I believe, is one of the most dangerous factors in, sorry, um, a confirmation bias, I believe, is one of the most dangerous factors in society at the moment, responsible for things as, as, as diverse as um, conspiracy theorists and, um, and, and people who get together in very, very strange groups in their, in their social media groups um, and, and what's called doom scrolling or, or, or continually searching the media for, uh, for bad information which confirms their negative view of the world. However, uh, I believe an interview is probably one of the few times when confirmation bias can actually work in a candidate's favour because I'm actually looking for confirmation when I go in as a member of the panel. I'm looking for confirmation of the positive assumptions that I have made, which has caused this person to be shortlisted in the first place. And I think uh, as a candidate, you should be hoping that confirmation bias is working for you because I'm not looking to try and um, uh, have my beliefs um, turned upside down. I'm looking for me to have my my initial assumptions based on what I've read of you in your CV um, confirmed and then to be able to go further. So ironically, I think confirmation bias could actually work in a candidate's favour in an interview. It's, uh, it, I guess you were saying um, you know, to me that you see so many people, I guess you work for big and small companies and you said, you know, so many people fall short. And I'm thinking, what for you is the biggest single factor where candidates fall short at interview? They fail to find the Goldilocks spot. They, there's, 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 there are two extremes. You either undersell yourself or you, you go to the extreme of overselling yourself. And I believe that most times people fail to find the, the spot that's, that's actually right for that particular environment in that particular context. And um, uh, I think in Australia it's a little bit different and I think it's very, we have to be very careful of uh, taking research coming from overseas in the way that we perceive things. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware that in uh, analysing, in, in normalising the, the terminology used in the very well-known behavioural model known as DISC, they actually looked at how uh, uh, people in the United States and people in Australia looked at different words. And what, um, what stuck in my mind when I was looking at that research is that in the United States, they saw somebody describing themselves as humble as being a negative aspect, whereas in Australia, we saw somebody describing themselves as humble as being a positive aspect. So I think in Australia, you are much more likely to fall into a dangerous territory if you oversell yourself, because I think sometimes we will overcompensate for that and probably um, think negatively of you. Whereas if you are underselling yourself, uh, certainly I tend to um, maybe even try to compensate for that because I might believe that this person is obviously very talented, but they are obviously just not good at performing in the interview space. And so I try and, and compensate for that. But certainly the greatest danger is trying to oversell yourself in an interview in Australia. I think it will simply cause the panel to um, discount what you're saying and to form a negative impression of you. I think that's so spot on. Um, obviously, you know, I've worked with a lot of Americans overseas. I've worked in the UK extensively, all sorts of cultures, really, because I was sort of one of those generations of HR people that came up through the dot-com boom. 
in London, you speak to a subject. In America, you speak to it even more so. In Australia, we're pretty laid back. We come upon it from a different sort of way. We're probably a little bit more humble. We frame it a little bit where there's a, you know, we use almost like different words. It's kind of that laid back Aussie way, but we still power achievement. It's interesting, you said to me um, when we were talking last week, and I found this absolutely spot on. I really don't know why people get so, I understand it's an awkward situation to be in interviews. And, you know, and I always say to people, plan, plan, preparation, meets opportunity, all of that sort of stuff. But you're so spot on. There's nearly always four or five category of questions that are always asked, and you need to know exactly how to answer them. It's like singing a song that you've sung a hundred times. You know exactly what you're saying, why you're saying it, and how you're saying it. But it's interesting. You said interviews are entirely predictable. So why do candidates give boring answers? Can you tell me what you mean by that? Because I can just imagine how difficult it is to say, gosh, it's not even underselling yourself. It's like, surely there's a spark in there that you can come out with something new, novel, different, interesting to really sort of um, stand out to us. Explain what you meant by that. Interviews are entirely predictable. I totally agree. Um, So why give boring answers? Interviews are more predictable now, I think, than maybe uh, when uh, certainly I, or maybe a little bit later, you uh, first came into 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 the working space because we are obsessive about fairness now. We are obsessive about giving a a, a fair process um, to to each candidate. We are paranoid about uh, being challenged that our decision making process wasn't as fair and as transparent as it as it should have been. And so they are more predictable now, I think, than at any other time in the past. Uh, the trouble is, I think, and again, this gets back to personalities, I think, and our way of dealing with, with difficult issues. I mean, some people deal with difficult issues by believing that this is something I'm afraid of, and, and certainly I believe the best way to deal with a fear is by taking some action, which is that logical process that you took, which is did you suggested, which is let's think about the predictable questions and let's think about what I might say to be able to distinguish myself uh, in answering that particular question. Unfortunately, in my experience, a lot of people fall into the illogical emotional approach, which is not a lot different. And again, we're Irish, so I'll I'll use that reference again. Not a lot different to to getting down on your knees uh, and praying that they don't ask you any difficult questions. And and, and that's that's the extent of the preparation that I think a lot of people go into. So I think... Um, uh, being proactive and also in giving the answers to the questions, don't try and frame it in what do they want me to say? What are they looking for? The minute you you use that as the framing for your answer, you become entirely predictable and all of a sudden you sound the same as the other three or four candidates. And let me tell you, by the time I'm listening to what is being uh, said to me by the fourth or fifth candidate, if there's that many in a, in a particular session, I'm struggling to remember what the first candidate said. Um, so if you frame it in the way of what do they want me to say, and as I said, a lot of times when we first spoke about this, I spoke about the fact that I believe interviews are a negotiation. It's a, it's a structured discussion to be able to come out with a, with a positive outcome. Unfortunately, most people, I think, go into it uh, like um, uh, an audition for Australia's Got Talent. And so... Uh, they are trying to frame all of their answers in what do they want me to say? What are they expecting me to say? What do they, what do they want to hear from me? Um, and that instantly turns them into, uh, as I said, bland and forgettable rather than what can I say about this that shows my unique perspective, that allows me to be able to add something new 
to uh, to a predictable question, um, I think that's what's going to make the difference. Does does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I'm always talking to people about celebrate your uniqueness. You know, what is it about you, the person that powers you, the professional? Because at the end of the day, you might be a great professional, but if they can't connect with you, the person, and they can't connect the dots between the person that they're going to have to work with and the, the professional who's going to do that job, you will not get the job. Kevin, I've got a question. Um, do you have a favorite question that you like to ask? And if so, Why? Is there one question? I mean, I know normally, you know, I write interview guides for panels, so I know half the time you're scripted on the questions you can and can't ask for the sake of objectivity, parity and fairness, what have you. But do you actually have a question that you like to ask? Um, and what is it? If you did have one, well, if you did have one, if you're allowed, if you're allowed off the chain, are you allowed, is there a question you would ask and why? Uh, I'm a little bit intimidated with the, with the analogy of being off the chain, uh, Rajan, but... but <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's more accurate than I would like to admit to. Um, I, I think it's really important not to ask tricky questions. It's, it's. I'm hyper conscious of the position that I'm in, and, and I've always got that image of the, of the, of the interviewer uh, sitting in the higher chair with the with the interviewee in a slightly lower sort of chair, trying to give yourself all the the physical um, impressions, and and all of a sudden you're uh, you're acting like Donald Trump in The Apprentice. Uh, and I'm, I'm obsessive about trying to um, keep this um, uh, in a situation where they can actually show me uh, what they might really be able to bring to this. And so they tend to be follow-on questions. And so they're not initial uh, initial questions because, as you said, they tend to be rather structured. But it's easy to ask follow-on questions once somebody's already asked one of the set questions. And they tend to be, and I'm a great fan of the, of the brilliant gentleman um, Simon Sinek, who I think the first book that he wrote that I became aware of was entitled Start With Why. And the two questions that I tend to ask mostly um, are why questions. Um, and the first one is why us? In other words, of all of the different uh, positions that you might have considered going for, why did you choose to apply for this position with our company? Um, and I'm trying to there find some alignment between their individual values, their passions, their purpose, their, um, their, 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 their way of seeing the world and how that aligns with um, the company ethos and the company's way of, of seeing the world. So why us? Why, did you, why would you rather work for us than for some other alternative organisation? I think is um, uh, one uh, question that often gets a really good answer. And the next question I will ask, given the context of, uh, the interview and, and where they're going is why now? In other words, why in the narrative of your career, in the process of your uh, professional career, why does this seem like the right position for you at the moment? Why do you think you are right now um, with your development and with your experience and expertise uh, to put yourself forward for this particular position? So why us um, and why now? Um, uh, allows me to be able to get, I think, a much better understanding of where the candidate's coming from and how we fit into into their world. I think a lot of times um, interviewers are all focused on how is that person going to fit in our world, but we also need to think about how do we fit into their world so because if it's, not a, if it's not the right fit, you know, I've often said sometimes you can see two marvellous people who are both beautiful people separately, but you put them into a marriage and you've got a toxic relationship. 
Um, it doesn't mean that either person is wrong. They're just the wrong fit. And I think a lot of times we have to we have to be able to try and um, identify that. Talking of identification, lots of people speak very eloquently, um, are very capable of showcasing who they are. And you know this thing about people who speak well, how do you distinguish whether or not they can do the job? And this comes back to the question, how do you separate who interviews best versus actually who is best for the job? This is, again, coin Kevin Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, that's the possibly the easiest question that you've asked me all uh, all day, Rajin, because um, I can give it to you in, in just one question that – and I'll give you the scenario quite often. Uh, most of the time it will be a panel of three, um, and though I will have uh, two people from the organisation – from obviously from different parts of the organisation, um, and they will have probably two candidates that are all equal in their in their mind, and they're really struggling to be able to to make a decision between the two of them, and it it really comes down to nothing more than the toss of a coin. And I have found that simply, and I, I got to admit, I, I stumbled on this question initially. I didn't realise how wise it was at the time, and the simple question was, but out of those two. Who would you rather work with? Just imagine walking into the office one day, who would you rather see sitting behind that desk? What would make you feel more comfortable? And it's, and it's validating their, their instinct, their, their, their gut feel. Because I think a lot of the times, um, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell with, um, uh, with Blink was, was the first one to be able to, to, to formalise this, making us recognise that sometimes there is an instinct that is, that is something that needs to be um, recognised and um, and also um, tapped into. And I've, I've found that by asking that question within a minute that people I'm asking the question of can, can decide on which person they should offer the position to. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. You know, the other thing we were talking about was confidence and competence. And I often say to people, you can leave your confidence outside the door anytime, but you've got to bring your competence in. Because it's a lose-lose if you're underconfident and you can't demonstrate your competence. And I think one of the things we discussed was, you, you know, people who are underconfident, we should never confuse a lack of underconfidence with perhaps a perception that there's also a lack of competence. How do you find ways when somebody is a quivering wreck, but you can see that there's gas in their tank? How do you find ways to decipher the two? How do you even make them feel comfortable? What do you do in that situation where you know you've got somebody really good, but quite clearly they're not coming across? By the way, I had that situation about um, before Christmas. I had somebody who absolutely bombed an interview. And we knew from her referees and we knew from her CV that she was absolutely gold. She still got off of that job because she was given the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people will deny that candidate that opportunity, even though it was quite clear she was having an off day and probably didn't even like interviews. Anyway, what are your thoughts on that, Kevin? I'm maybe, uh, maybe I'm a, um, a, a different to the, to the norm, Rajin, but uh, I tend to be a little bit suspicious of people who interview too well. Uh, I think they've spent more time focusing on performing well at the interview than thinking about how well, how suitable they are for the job. Um, and maybe when I look at their CV and I see how 
um, every 18 months they seem to be applying for a new position, I start getting suspicious as to why they've had so much practice at interviews. So, um, and I've talk about confidence, I, I tend to think of confidence in two ways. I think there's personal confidence and I think there's confidence in their applying for the position. And what I'm looking for is personal confidence. I totally understand if they don't have confidence in their application for the position. And um, we, we spoke about genders as well. And I think quite often uh, ladies, females are much, uh, much more likely to have less confidence in their ability to uh, meet the application uh, requirements. And that's been documented with many, many research projects. Uh, so uh, what I'm trying to look at is I'm trying to identify, okay, I understand you might not be confident in your application and how what we might be looking for and how well you, you fit to those particular uh, criteria that we've set. But I'm looking for your personal confidence, your underlying, uh, your, your core value, your core strength. Um, and what I will be trying to do is get them to tell me stories about their past environment. So don't, I don't want you to imagine yourself in this environment because it's totally understandable that you would not have confidence in that environment. That's why uh, William Marson, who created DISC, says you should never use uh, behavioural styles for recruitment because people change their behaviour given different environments and they've obviously got no, no idea how they will act in an environment that they've not experienced before. So what I want to do is I want to take them back to an environment where they did feel confident, where they did believe that they had the ability to be able to make significant decisions and get them to describe that particular situation to me. And if I can get them to do that, if I can get them to describe uh, the moment in their last position or a recent position where they did something and they were really proud of the outcome, they really feel that they, they, they'd made a difference, they really feel that they left a significant legacy behind them, something that they can be proud of, then I find that's a good way of being able to tease out of them um, and get a better view of what I call their personal confidence. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I suppose you're always most comfortable when you're talking about your own personal career story. And um, I personally would make great allowances for lack of confidence, but I still need somebody to be able to tell me what they are, who they are, and the value they're going to bring to that organization. So from my perspective, you know, there are so many different ways of gauging competence anyway, because, for example, you can look at references, you can look at the application, you know, there's a lot of information to stack up. Interview is only one part of the process. One of the things we talked about, Kevin, was nonverbal communication. Mm. And, you know, again, this is if you're underconfident. Um, I often think maybe the nonverbal side might actually swing in your favor. But perhaps you can talk me through your experience with nonverbal communication and how that can be actually beneficial in an interview. <laughs> Two examples. I spent, I've spent many years acting as a coach for uh, surgeons traditionally, and it's, been, it's just a, a small network that I've become uh, a referenced in of um, intensive care specialists. And I have been coaching them for their Viva Voce. In other words, this is the final interview they have to go through before they are given their particular position. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of my lack of a medical knowledge, but uh, when I'm coaching them for those Viva Voce, it is almost the equivalent of me coaching somebody who's speaking in a foreign language. 
because when they're being coached, they have me on one side who is looking at their body language and is listening to their tone of voice and giving them feedback on that. And on the other side is a professor who's telling them whether they're saying something that's absolute nonsense and is actually going to kill somebody. So I'm actually, um, the, these people see value and we have had great success with their, with their Viva Voce's. Uh, when I have been coaching them purely, and that's the best example I can give you, I'm coaching them purely on their non-verbals because I simply do not understand the medical terminology uh, that they're, they're using. Uh, and there is value there. Also, I had a trainee about four years ago um, in Singapore. He was a senior trainer for the um, for the Singapore uh, Checkpoint, um, they're they called the Immigration and Checkpoint Authority. These are the people that actually print on the immigration cards before you arrive in Singapore in big red letters, death for drug trafficking in Singapore. And when I was asking him what techniques does he use um, for training his um, uh, his interviewers in deciding whether people um, are valid or not, he said we focus on totally ignoring what they say and simply looking at their body language and listening to their tone of voice because we recognise that's where the truth comes from. And I think whether the interviewers are consciously doing that or unconsciously doing that, I think that's always happening. And that's, again, we referred to it earlier. That's where the gut feel comes from. That's where you can say, Oh, they all add up with all of this, all of the requirements on the CV, and they answered all the questions perfectly, but it just doesn't feel right. And I think we have to acknowledge the fact that um, that that's first of all a valid um, reaction, and also maybe able to analyse where that comes from. And from a um, an interviewee prospect, recognising the fact that you create um, a first impression with your body language before you've even said your first word. Um, I'll I share with you a little trick that I do, and I, I've never told anyone this before, Rajin, I'm, and I'm not sure I'll probably never be asked to be on another interview panel again after, <laughs> after this discussion. Um, but what I will often do is between one candidate and the next is I'll decide to take a, a restroom break. Um, now, I, I don't always need to actually use the restroom but it's an opportunity for me to walk out and walk past the waiting room to actually see the candidates that are sitting there because that allows me to be able to see what their reaction is to me. They don't know who I am, what their reaction is to a complete stranger in an unprompted, spontaneous moment. I'm able to see them in without any of the, of the artificiality that I might put on for an interview. Um, and um, uh, it... Uh, it might intimidate some interviewees to know how much that actually impacts um, uh, on my final decision. And but again, you I guess... impression when you walk into the building, not when you walk into the room. That's exactly right. And every person you run into, because be under no illusion, the PA that you walked by or the person who saw you as you sat in reception... And what you were doing and how you were holding yourself and your level of warmth and accommodation, all of those things are reported back. Oh, I hope they employ her or him. I really like them. Talking about her and him, the confidence gap. In your, You and I were talking about this also last week. We were talking about how women interview versus how women, uh, sorry, how men approach interviews versus perhaps how women approach interviews. Um, 
And I'm very curious to understand your response because you sent me a piece of research, which I found really interesting, which actually said that women are often critiqued based on their personality and their style rather than their abilities and skills. And the opposite would be said of their male counterparts. So I'm curious to understand in from your experience, the man, the woman approach to interviews and what are the standouts to you there in terms of their confidence and capability? Um, I'm going to change the details slightly because I don't want to obviously approach any confidentiality. But of I can course. remember looking at uh, somebody um, and we needed to come involved in, um, in some very, very intensive um, social community work in Alice Springs. Again, false location, but I want to protect thing. Uh, I had females come in and say, I have worked in Alice Springs for three years, but I'm not sure if I have met all of the criteria for this particular uh, particular position. I had a male, and this is without lie, uh, used as their validation the fact that they had been to Alice Springs on holidays. And I think that, in a way, sums up the, the difference. And I've also seen research, maybe you've seen it as well, that if there are five selection criteria, if a male believes they can re- meet three of them, they'll put themselves forward for the position. Whereas if a female doesn't, don't believe they can meet all five, they won't put themselves forward to the position. So um, going back to those that, that Goldilocks spot that mm-hmm. I referred to earlier on, more very typically uh, males will oversell themselves, females will undersell themselves. Now the good thing about it from a female perspective is this has become fairly common knowledge amongst uh, people doing the interviews now. And we, I believe we compensate for it. And we tend to maybe, um, uh, how can I put it? Um, for me, I dial up the females and I dial down the males. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, um, no, and, totally. And um, I think because, there's, a, there's a lot of female candidates out there are going to say thank you for that understanding because there is that sort of sense that they feel, you know, if they're a mother, if they have those sort of commitments, they feel like, um, you know, there's that sense of will I be seen as an equal because I'm the mother, I have a family, I have a lot of obligations. Um, from my perspective, gender to one side, best gets up and best gets the job. And that's a very, very simple one for me. Kevin, We our time is absolutely racing by. I've got... I've got to ask this question. Well, there's two questions I have to ask. The remuneration question, because you're the expert on negotiation. And one of the things that kind of occurred to me, and this is so true because people ring me and say, Roisin, if they ask me what I want, what should I say? Roisin, I want to go and get a pay increase, but I don't know how to broach the subject. I swear, so many people say to me, you know, when, when it comes to that question, what are your salary expectations in an interview? They literally clam up. Tell me, when it comes to negotiation, when it comes to if you're asked that question, what advice would you give candidates? Because this is a question they should be able to answer as easily as who are you? Uh, well, they should be prepared for it, Rajin, um, I believe. Yes. And, and, and certainly it's, it's nonsensical to not be prepared for it. However, um, I think sometimes people think being prepared means that I have to have a figure in my head. I have to have a... I have to have a a, a package almost written up in a contract ready to put down there in, in front of them. And I think a lot of times people, and this is what I say for my basic negotiation, quite often people will come to me with a particular negotiation and often it's it's like a, 
yeah, a, a re-confirmation re of a contract or maybe looking at going on to a new position. And they're saying, how do I say, give, give, me, give me the structure of the entire conversation. Um, and, and I've said, no, just remember that word, conversation. Go in there and open up the subjects and, and, and allow the conversation to happen rather than having set things to say. So even if your response is going to be, I'd rather you put the offer first, then at least have that as your answer and look them in the eye and say it with confidence. So as if you have actually prepared for it and that's what you would prepare to do. Uh, other negotiation techniques that could be used in this, uh, as human beings, we are hyper-comparative. So we always are comparing any figure to a figure that we've previously heard. And so there's a technique in uh, uh, in uh, in negotiation known as the non-offer offer. So in other words, if you were to ask me what sort of package were you looking for, what sort of remuneration were you looking for, what salary amount were you looking for, I might throw the answer back, you know, I've seen what I think to be similar positions advertised for $400,000 a year. And I'd say it with a smile. So in other words, I'm not suggesting I'm going to be asking for $400,000 a year, but if I put that figure in your head, and give you a chance to be able to respond to me, whatever you offer me is going to seem not quite so impressive as the $400,000 that I have actually said. I shouldn't admit this to you in an interview, but if somebody was to say to me, how much are you charging for a keynote presentation? My first response to them is, you know, I saw in the paper only last week that Barack Obama got $250,000 for a keynote presentation. Now, I'm not suggesting I'm Barack Obama, and I'm not suggesting I'm gonna ask for a quarter of a million dollars. But when I do give you my fee, it sounds a lot better after I put a quarter of a million dollars as a reference point into your head. Other responses, because um, I think this is something that I might be able to even give some. I've thought about a couple of potential answers, Rajin. Would you be happy for me to? to give I would those? love you to, because I think a lot of this will be repurposed everywhere in the coming months, Kevin. So absolutely, I think. Okay, so here are my uh, four, four potential answers given how you might be asked uh, that particular question. Um, this has not been one of my priorities. Excuse me, I'm reading this. I just want to get it right. This has not been one of my priorities in preparing for this interview. You had to decide if I was the right candidate first. I don't like to get ahead of myself. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so it's been a reason for that. Um, or um, you're much more expert in that area than I am, and I'm sure you've got a range in mind. Um, have I given you enough of this interview to be able to allow you to assess where I might fit in that range? I love or, it. Uh, in my last position, because quite often they'll use that as a reference point, in my last position, the salary was just part of a package that included a significant amount of tangible and intangible benefits. So I don't believe that that salary amount is a, is a valid reference point for, for us to be able to have that discussion at the moment. Uh, that's addressing that one. Or... And again, one of the best words of negotiation is fair. We all love to be fair. Even though the world isn't fair, it's, it's an ideal we aim for. I just want something that's fair based on the demands and the responsibilities of this position. Now, you'd have a much better understanding of what those are than I would. So what you, would you think is a fair package? <laughs> Reverse psychology. I love uh, all and, of and, those. And, and here's the most important point. Follow up with silence. Shut up bite your tongue, look them in the eye, and don't say another word until they respond. Because where most candidates fail is whilst the 
interviewers are still processing this and even, I dare it, um, are being impressed by what's being said and trying to internalise all of that and think about that what the response might be, the candidate has gone into deep panic mode thinking that now they've got to fill this silence with something and they come out with something which compromises the great stuff that they've just said. Shut up. The, a, a, a principle from negotiation, the person who is most comfortable with silence wins the negotiation and I think that's true in interviews for positions as well. Kevin Ryan, can I tell you, I think I had several more questions and I thought, you know, we could keep going for an hour. I reckon you and I could keep going for a couple of hours. <laughs> to everybody tuning in at home, and please thank Kevin. It's just wonderful that you've been able to share oh, just the context, the contribution, um, that whole sort of, you know, correlation of everything that you're describing for us, which is so important when people go to interview, the confidence, competence piece, um, and that ability of smart ways of how to tackle you know, the remuneration question, which which absolutely kills most people. And um, my advice to anybody at home who's listening in, you know, if you think once you get interviewed, you're going to be fine, think again. There are very few jobs at the moment. You need to make sure exactly as Kevin said, don't go in with boring um, answers. Interviews are predictable. Stand out, celebrate your uniqueness, showcase your contribution and your capability. Absolutely vitally important if you're going to stand out on a short list of four people that are being interviewed. And remember, often you'll have, you know, maybe uh, one or two or three interviews. Sometimes you'll have a panel of three or four people sat in front of you. Connect with all of them, but make sure that you go in there with a game plan of how you're going to differentiate yourself. Um, on that note, Kevin, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. I've learned, you know, I would regard myself as being pretty clued up when it comes to interview coaching, the things that I do, but I've even learned quite a number of things for you today. And I want to thank you for your time. And stay on the line because we'll talk after the show. Rajin, um, you got and- me to share more than I anticipated or more than I thought I would. So obviously you're a very uh, persuasive interviewer. Um, congratulations um, on a great show. I'll have to work harder next time because you said to me that was the easiest question I asked you. And I thought, hmm, need to put a bit more work into some of that. Um, to everybody at home, thank you for tuning in. To everybody at work, thank you for tuning in. The Living Your Career show airs every Tuesday and Thursday, Brisbane noontime. And from Kevin Ryan and from myself. Goodbye, everybody. And-